All right. Good morning. That was pretty enthusiastic. Thank you. Uh, good morning. It is so good to be with you. If you don't know me, my name is Connor Haas, and I was thinking as I was driving over this morning that if there was a church that would be my home after uh, Grace Church of Orange, where I regularly am, it'd probably be here. I've been here more than anywhere else in the last few years, so I'm, I'm thankful. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm thankful to be back with you again, and just really excited to open God's uh, Word with you. If you got your Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. I know we've been in a series on the stories of Jesus, the parables, and so I am just falling right in line with that, and we are going to look at a parable from the lips of Jesus in Luke 18. So start with me at verse 9, and I actually don't know, do you stand here when you read the Bible? Let's stand for the reading of God's Word out of honor for, out of honor for, this, for this Word from God. Let's read together. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You may have a seat. And in just a moment, we're going to begin, but let me pray first to just ask for God's blessing on His Word and on our time together. Lord, thank You for this morning together. We don't just pray because it's a formality or it's what we do before we start to hear from Your Word, but it's because we need the work of Your Spirit right now, Lord. In ourselves, we have no spiritual appetite. We aren't sensitive to the things of your word. We're distracted by all kinds of, uh, all kinds of circumstances, situations, things that are going on in life. So Lord, we need your grace right now. Please open our eyes to see what's here for us in your word. And more than anything else, Lord, we long to have Jesus exalted in our hearts this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to see him more clearly Help us to grow in our love for him and our affection. Lord, we believe in your Holy Spirit, and we just pray for your work among us this morning. Amen. About 70 years ago, there was a pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he pastored in the city of Philadelphia. And one morning, he preached a sermon to his congregation that was carried across the entire nation by this new technology called the radio. So it went on uh, CBS radio across the nation, and in this sermon, Donald Gray Barnhouse asked the question, what would it look like if Satan took over a town? What would it look like if Satan took over a town? And I see some of you shaking your heads already, like you can just imagine that, and immediately images spring to mind. There would be 
unrestrained uh, abuse of alcohol and drugs. There would be sexual misconduct and perversions of every kind, pornography and prostitution, adultery, affairs, you can imagine that, broken family relationships, shattered marriages, disobedient kids. You can almost imagine a city filled with people who would shake their fists at God, pledge allegiance to the devil, and be filled with nothing but hatred for one another. That's the thing that comes to mind. But this pastor, Barnhouse, he offered a really different picture to his congregation. He said this, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. That's what it would look like if Satan took over a town. You might think that Satan hates religion, but not, not so. He actually loves religion, as long as it doesn't really show people how they can come into right relationship with God. And we, we might think, oh, Satan hates churches, but not necessarily. He actually doesn't mind churches that won't tell people about their sin and their need to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. You might think, well, well, Satan hates preaching. He must hate preaching. Not exactly. Satan actually loves the kind of preaching that fawns and flatters and affirms and tells you, you can have your best life now, just as you are. You don't need to, you don't need to change anything. God likes you just as you are. Sin, not a big deal. Satan loves that kind of preaching. So what does Satan hate? Well, what he hates more than anything else is God, and he hates it when sinful people like us come into right relationship with God. Satan hates that, and so he does everything he can to obscure and muddy and cloud the waters of our understanding so that we won't come to grips with the way that we can really be made right with God through faith in Jesus. Isn't that what he does? This is what he's been doing since the beginning. Since the garden, mankind has had this perennial problem where we have a broken relationship with God and we try to get back into relationship with God in all the wrong ways. And Satan loves to give us this line again and again and again and again. The road back to God is to climb the flimsy ladder of your own righteousness. He wants us to believe that. You're a bad person, Satan would say. That's okay, though. If you just try hard enough, be better, turn away from sin a little bit more, you can know God again. That's Satan's line, and it's a line that people believe over and over and over again. But the most important question that we can ask and really get our minds around is, how does God combat the lie? What does God say about how we can really be brought into right relationship with him? And that is the question that Jesus wades into in this morning's parable. So Jesus is addressing the question, look at verse 9, He's addressing the question, how can we be brought into right relationship with God? And we specifically read that he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So who is in Jesus' crosshairs in this? It's anybody who's fallen for this lie of Satan. I can be made right with God 
by my own righteousness. I'm trusting in myself. I'm going to get myself there. Jesus aims this parable at that group. And he has something really important to show us through this story. You know, it's interesting. Jesus is addressing some of the biggest questions that man could ever ask. What is God really like? How can I really be someone who actually knows and walks with the God of the universe? And in response to those kinds of questions, we might expect a theological discourse or a really exact exegetical digest, but that's not what Jesus gives. In typical Jesus fashion, he gives us a story, and it's an amazingly profound story and a story that to the original hearers would have been absolutely outrageous, completely scandalous. Because in the story that we have in front of us this morning, Jesus completely flips on its head everything that these people thought about righteousness, about what God was like, about how they could know God. He turns it all upside down. And it's a story of two men. Two men. Two approaches to God. Two prayers. Two ways of thinking about God. Two hearts. And so... Today, this is what we want to do. We want to look at these two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and ask the question, what do they think as they approach God? How do they think that they can be made right with God? And, and specifically, if we, if we could imagine this, we want to pull our own hearts out for examination and say, how do I stack up? What do I see in my own heart that leans towards the Pharisee or that aligns with the tax collector? Where do I fall and how am I thinking about my own approach towards God in his, in his righteousness and knowing my need for righteousness? How, how do I line up? So our plan for this morning is really simple. We're just going to look at these two men and specifically their hearts. And we're going to see first the legalistic heart and then the humble heart. And then at the end, we're just going to circle back and look at Jesus' commentary on his own story and try to put the pieces together to figure out what is, what is the right heart disposition as we approach God. Everybody with me there? Sound good? All right, great. And before we get into this first legalistic heart, I just want to say something and get it right out in the open regarding legalism in particular. I think there is a danger that all of us can fall into, and maybe you already have this morning oh, this is a sermon about a, a legalistic person or a person who understands that salvation is through faith. Well, guess what? I've been in church long enough, and I understand that salvation's by faith, so I guess this one's not for me. And I want to just, I, I want to try to drag that thinking out into the light and say, not so fast. Because, and we're going to see this as we get into the mindset of the Pharisee a little bit, legalism is far more nuanced than you might think or suspect. And because of that, it's far more sinister. I, I bet if we walked outside right now and we lined up everybody and we took a survey and said, do you think that salvation is based on faith or works? What would everybody say? Faith. I hope faith. Yes, that's right. I heard a loud answer. That's good. Faith. I, I don't know. And if you're, if you're, you know, haven't darkened the door of a church in a while, Maybe you, maybe you wouldn't be so clear on that answer, but a lot of us, at least, especially if we've been in church regularly, we'd say, well, that's a no-brainer, salvation by faith. I know that. I'm not a legalist. But the way that the Bible presents legalism is very different. It's not so much a doctrinal conviction as much as it is 
a heart attitude towards God, a disposition, a feeling, a, a way that we approach Him that flavors our life as believers. Does that make sense? And so this morning, I, I would suspect that maybe in many of our hearts, the temperature on the legalism thermometer is a lot, it's a lot higher than we might think it is. And so as we look at this story, I want to try to draw those things out and just have each of us consider the question, in what ways am I really like this Pharisee? And I really, even though I would affirm salvation by faith, it's grace, it's all God's kindness to me, deep down there's something going on in my heart that still subscribes to that old serpentine lie that my standing with God is based on my works. So that's what we want to look at this morning, and we're going to get into it right now. So we want to first consider, what does this legalistic heart look like that the Pharisee exemplifies? Look with me at verse 9. We're going to get into this. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now he begins. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I don't, think, I don't think I need to pause too long on these two categories. These might be the two most notorious characters in the Gospels. The Pharisees on one hand, the tax collectors on the other. If you have ever been in a Sunday school that involved a felt board, you have seen these characters make an appearance, right? They've been there. You know what the Pharisees are about. You've heard plenty of teaching and preaching on how the Pharisees were these Jewish religious leaders who had gotten things twisted. They had put in law before grace. They had started to subscribe to a system in which by their own righteousness, they'd bring themselves into relationship with God. And you've heard that the tax collectors were the worst of the worst. You couldn't get any lower. These were the ultimate betrayers. They had sold out their own people for the green stuff. That's who the tax collectors were. They had basically taken a position as a Roman customs enforcer and did everything they could to get more money out of their own people, the Jews. We're very familiar with these categories. But I want to remind you, in Jesus' time, did people think of the Pharisees as the ultimate bad guys? No. It was actually exactly the opposite. The Pharisees were lauded. They were held up as the example par excellence. No one was better than the Pharisees. And so as Jesus' listeners are starting to hear this story, they're starting to form a very clear uh, end of the story in their minds. Oh, I know who's going to win this battle. If it's a Pharisee versus a tax collector, Pharisee wins every time. That's what they must have been thinking. But Jesus is, like I said, he's about to turn it all on its head. And so we first start to look at this Pharisee's heart, and we see the legalistic grip that it's in. Look with me at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What is the legalistic heart like? What is legalism nurtured by? I want to point out two things that I think we see from the Pharisees' prayer right here that um, give us some insight into where legalism develops from, where it germinates. There's, there's two things. The first is a focus on comparison, and the second is a focus on externalism. Comparison and externalism. Look with me 
uh, first that this focus on comparison. The Pharisee begins his prayer thanking God with this wonderful, humble prayer. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And that's how he starts. And you can see the way that he immediately moves as his modus operandus. He moves towards comparing himself to other people to try to bolster his own claims of righteousness before God. You see that, right? Verse uh, 11, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners. These were the people who, like the tax collector, would defraud and, and rob, unjust. These were people who were categorically unrighteous and unfair in their dealings with others. Adulterers, maybe like the most looked down upon sect of society, people who had committed sexual immorality. And then the Pharisee spies a convenient object lesson close by, a tax, oh, and, oh, and God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. He's horrible. So do you see how the, the very approach of the Pharisee is dependent upon his comparison to other people? That's how legalism often begins, and it's often nurtured as we continue in that mindset. Even at a basic level, we know that this kind of thinking doesn't actually work. Every student, even a little kid who's been in a classroom, understands that he can't run up to his professor after the class and say, oh, I passed the test because I did better than the person next to me. That person might have gotten a zero. That doesn't guarantee a passing grade. We, we understand that, and yet, there is something in all of us. Because of the pride that wants to, to rest in our hearts, there's something in all of us that loves to look at others and feel a secret pride because we know that there's something that they've done, something about their character that, in our minds at least, has stooped lower than our own. And it buoys us up and it makes us feel like we can stand before God. That's one of the contributing factors to legalism. And I want to point something out in case you think, well, legalism is just, it's just a private matter. It's something between me and God. If I, you know, I need to struggle with this with God, but it's not going to affect my relationship with other people. That's absolutely not true. Look back at verse 9 as Jesus begins. He says this parable is for some who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You know what that means? If you have a heart that can in any way stand with some pride before God, you necessarily look at other people and you disdain them because you think that they haven't attained to the level that you have. And so you can quickly see, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more in the concluding lines from Jesus, but you can quickly see how fast legalism can poison a group of believers, a congregation, a church, because if everybody is looking down their nose at everybody else, it's exactly the opposite of the kind of love that Jesus wants his body to have for one another. So that's the first contributing factor to a legalistic heart, a focus on comparison. But there's another, and that is a focus on externalism. A focus on externalism. Because look at where the Pharisee goes next as he's trying to plead his case before God. Verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. So not only, God, am I not like other people, but I also have this going for me. I am in strict obedience and I am in strict observance of all of these external laws that you have placed upon me. And there's actually a catch because if we dig into what he says, we'll realize that neither the fasting or the tithes, the tithes were actually things that God had asked for in the first place. Let's just think about each of these and I want to go to other places in the scripture to see how Jesus responds to what he says. But first he says, I fast twice a week. 
the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, had developed a system of fasting that went way beyond what the Old Testament had asked for. The Old Testament actually only calls for one fast a year in preparation for the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees had adopted a system of fasting twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Conveniently, Mondays and Thursdays were the busiest days in the market in that time. So they chose to fast when everybody's out and about doing their business so that they can walk around and visibly show everybody, look how holy I am. I fast twice a week. And Jesus directly condemns this kind of attitude. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says this, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Pharisees are boasting here of something that God never even asked for. Again, with that kid in the classroom. This would be like a kid running up to the teacher and saying, teacher, teacher, I got two questions right. And she asked, well, which questions? Well, I wrote them on the back of my test and then I answered them. Do I get points for those? The teacher would respond, no. That was never on the test in the first place. But that's exactly the way the Pharisees are approaching God. And then he, this Pharisee offers a second, a second point of righteousness and he says, I tithe of everything that I get. Tithing was a little bit more built out in the Old Testament commands. You're supposed to tithe a little bit north of 20%, all put together. But the Pharisees had taken this, again, as a vehicle for showcasing their own righteousness by tithing a portion of every little thing that they received. Again, not, as a heart, uh, not, a, not from a heart that wanted to obey and serve and, and love God, but from a heart that wanted to demonstrate their own righteousness. And Jesus attacks this directly. Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what is the Pharisees' big problem here? It's that they focus on external factors of obedience while neglecting the deep matters of the heart. And I just want to say to all of us this morning, we are absolutely in danger of doing the same thing. We really are. Um, I, I want to, in a second, um, I want to, in a second, kind of ask a question for us. Give us a little bit of a, a, a where do I fall on the legalism scale survey. But before we do, I just, I want to mention one thing about the Pharisees that I do think is lost on us sometimes. Like I said before, we think of the Pharisees most often as the prototypical villains who think that they can be made righteous before God based on their works, right? Isn't that how we, we usually define them? Well, I don't want to get into this too much, but in recent years, in the last 40 years or so, there's, there's been a lot of, of ink spilled in the world of scholarship with people arguing that the Pharisees really have gotten a bad rap. They've been misunderstood. We haven't actually really grasp what they were all about. And this group of scholars, a large group, is saying the Pharisees actually didn't believe in works righteousness at all. They understood that salvation came through grace. Is this group right or are they wrong? Well, I, I want to say the answer is yes and no. Um, and this is what I think we can sometimes miss. The Pharisees, if you were to put them in a room and give them a piece of paper and say, hey, write down your doctrinal convictions regarding how people can know God. 
they would have known and I think written down that a big factor in their relationship with God was dependent on God's grace. We can even see that in the way the Pharisee prays. He starts off his prayer thanking who? God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Meaning, there's some awareness in the Pharisee's mind of the fact that him being unlike other men is the result of God's work in his life. God, thank you for your gracious work in my life to make me unlike other people. So the Pharisees understood intellectually that they were dependent on God's grace, and yet they erred. And it's obvious that they erred seriously because Jesus' constant admonition against them is, you've missed it. You're leading Israel astray. You're blind guides. How do they miss it? It wasn't in rejecting a doctrinal stance regarding the grace of God. It was in that sinister and subtle shift in which they acknowledged the grace of God with lip service, but acted as though everything depended on them. And that's exactly the danger that we are in. I would say especially in a place like this, a church characterized by great teaching, sound doctrine, listening to someone like me, someone who's gone to school, Bible school, and, and is, you know, very, in my mind at least, very keen to get all the points right. It's exactly people like us who are in most danger of slipping into this way of thinking, that in some way we're contributing a, a piece to the pie of God's grace towards, towards us, and it's just not the case. This attitude of legalism betrays two things. It betrays, one, that the Pharisee didn't know God, and two, that he didn't know how to come to God. He didn't understand the character of God. If he had, he never would have approached him this way. Second, he didn't know how to come to God. He was utterly unaware of the fact that it was all by grace. So in a second, we're going to move to the tax collector, but before we do, I want to just ask you some questions to maybe just stir in your mind a little bit of thinking about areas where you might more than you would realize, fall into this trap, this way of thinking that, that there's a legalistic bent inside of you. Let me just ask you a few questions and you can let these sit in your mind. Do you find yourself constantly comparing yourself with others and finding yourself either discouraged or encouraged based on how you stack up? Is that a reality in your life? If it is, it might betray that there's something in you that thinks that your standing is really based on your performance. Do you feel that God's feelings toward you are dependent on your behavior? Are you excited when you feel like you've had a good week and you're mostly avoiding the major sins, but then you just, you feel like you've dashed it all against the rocks when you've sinned and God couldn't possibly love you? Do you think that his feelings towards you are in some way dependent on what you're doing? You have a sneaking suspicion that God is perpetually displeased or even disappointed with you. Do you ever find yourself subconsciously thankful that you are not like other people? Do you focus on keeping up outward appearances, but, but neglect the most important issues deep in your heart? And finally, do you secretly enjoy, maybe even without realizing it, the praise of others, especially praise concerning your own righteousness or devotion to the church or the Lord? Does that ever just make you a little bit too excited to hear that kind of thing? I realize that those are some serious questions, but as I was thinking through this, I was just praying, Lord, help me to see where my heart is not in line with your word and where I'm thinking that, that I am bringing something to the table by my own righteousness. 
Those kinds of questions are really good diagnostics for us to, to consider where our heart is at, and we really don't want to be like this Pharisee. It's funny to see the caricature. Oh, I would never do that. But even while we might be able to subscribe to justification by faith, and you could point me to the passages in Romans where you know that salvation is a gift of grace, even still, we can slide in this way of thinking. And so now we want to say or ask, what's the positive example? Where should we look? What should we uh, see as, as the model for us to pursue in our approach for God? And that's where Jesus gives us the second character. It's the tax collector. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we end right there. The second point is the humble heart, the humble heart. And what does the humble heart look like? I just want to give you two characteristics that must characterize a humble heart as we approach God. There's really only two, grief over sin and desperation for God's mercy. Grief over sin and desperation for God's mercy. Look at how different the tax collector's approach and his heart is from the Pharisees. He starts off by saying, or he starts off, I should say, by not even looking to heaven because he's so convicted by his own sin. He's beating his own breast, and he says, God, be merciful to me, and then what's his self-designation? One word, sinner, sinner. The Pharisee came to God with a list of self-made accolades, I thank you that I'm not like an extortioner or an unjust person or an adulterer, not like this tax collector. I tithe, I fast. That's his self-identification. What does the tax collector say? I'm the sinner. That's all I am. One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, his name was Martin Lloyd-Jones, very close to the end of his life, after a whole lifetime of ministry used really powerfully by God, someone asked him, what's the main thing? What is the main thing? And his response is this. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. That's the heart of somebody who really understands their hopeless position before God. I am a great sinner. If I know one thing about myself, it's that I am all messed up. Every way, every part of me, deep down, there's so much pride, arrogance, selfishness. There's so much twisted desires and affections that aren't aligned as they should be towards God. Who am I? I'm a sinner. That's the starting place for somebody who wants to approach Jesus. I talk to people sometimes who call themselves Christians, but then if you ask them, do you think that you're a good person? They'd say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I'm definitely better than my neighbor, you know. But I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, he, he's my savior, but I'm still a pretty good person. That heart betrays the fact that you really have no clue who Jesus is. You don't know anything about his holiness. You don't know anything about his greatness if you would be so presumptuous as to come to him and think, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, Lord. I guess you should give me your grace just to kind of get me to the 100% mark to make up for what I lack. That's not how we approach God. We approach him as a, a sinner, grieved and convicted by all of the ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Second thing that characterizes this kind of heart is desperation for God's mercy. Look at his cry. God, be merciful to me. The Pharisee approached God really cavalierly. He just jumped right in. Oh, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. That's exactly the opposite of the tax collector. He comes to God knowing that he needs one thing from God, mercy. 
not affirmation of his own goodness, mercy. God's action on his behalf to make him righteous. God's action on his behalf to bring him into right standing with himself. God, I am a sinner desperately in need of your mercy. Some of us have, have lost that thrust in our life as believers. We just kind of are plodding along, and obviously life can be very mundane and normal, and maybe we forget the fact that deep down there is a heart in us that remains twisted and wicked and daily in need of new mercy from God. I love that song, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you every hour. I need you. You are my one defense. You are my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. If you feel like you can make it through a week without much need for God and for his mercy, your heart might be further away from the heart of this tax collector than you would think. And this tax collector's humility really demonstrates two things to us. First, it demonstrates that he understands and knows God. He understands what God is like. Think about the scenes in your Bible where someone is confronted with the glory of God. I'm thinking of Isaiah chapter 6. You with me there? Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord seated on a throne, and the train of his robe is filling the temple, and angels and seraphims are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can you imagine a world in which Isaiah would respond in that throne room? God, thank you that I'm not like other Israelites. No, that is the furthest thing from his mind. He crumples into a heap and says, woe is me, I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst an unclean people. My eyes have seen you, Lord. I could never... I could never offer the thinnest shred of righteousness to add to my account. Woe is me. There's a lot of that response in the tax collector here. He knows God. He, he, unlike the Pharisee, is not thinking about other people. He's thinking about God. And the moment that we turn from thinking about other people to thinking about God, we realize, wow, I am far worse than I ever thought because God is far greater than I could ever know. I'm way worse. And so, we desperately need God's mercy. And the second thing is he knows how to come to God. And by this, I mean, I mean this. Some people might have a sense of their own sin, but they don't actually know the character of God, and they don't realize that he is a merciful father who's provided salvation in Christ. This man understands that. God, I'm a merciful sinner. I, I, I'm a sinner, but he doesn't stop there. But God, you are a merciful God, and I need your mercy. It is good news that God is a merciful God who pardons sinners. It's not enough to just have a sense of our conviction over sin and, and guilt. We need to understand who God is and that he is a loving father who delights to pardon the sins of his children. And he has pardoned those sins for everybody who believes in Christ on the cross. If you come away with one thing this morning, one thing, it should be this. God is a God of love who loves to save sinners. He loves to save sinners. And if that note is not ringing out strongly in your mind, you're always going to want to creep back in to that legalistic framework because you're not going to know that he's so loving, he's so kind, that the, in the moment of sin, as soon as we turn back, 
If you are his child, there is nothing but love. There's nothing but love because he is that kind and that good. If we lose that beating heart, then we're tempted to crawl back into the legalistic framework, and we don't want to do that. So as we wrap things up, we want to put the pieces together by looking at Jesus' response, where it all just becomes crystal clear to us. We've seen the legalistic heart of the Pharisee, and we've seen the heart of the tax collector. How does Jesus evaluate what's happened in the story? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What does that mean? Plain and simple. The very man who you would think would be least likely to end up in the righteous standing before God, he does. And the one who you think would be most likely to be righteous for God in every way, he returns to his house not justified. What does justified mean? It means a declaration guilt-free. It means that God looks at this man who's come to him low and humble, pleading for mercy, and he says, your sins are taken away. Your, your sins are atoned for. I've removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. You are righteous before me. How does that happen, by the way? It happens in Christ. When we talked about at the beginning, that, that story from Donald Barnhouse, he said that it's, it's not a bad thing in Satan's mind to have churches filled with people. Where Satan starts to shake in his boots is when Christ is being preached, because Jesus is the way that we can be right with God. And, and I, I just have to say, if you're here this morning and someone just dragged you here, Christians can be crafty people, so I don't know how you got here. If someone dragged you here and you are going, what's going on? You need to know. This is God speaking through a, a weak man like me right now as a preacher. You need to know there is salvation to sinners in this man, Jesus. Shortly after he told this story, he was hanging on a cross, taking the punishment from the Father that sinners like us deserve, and three days later, he rose again. And now he lives and he calls people to come to himself in this way. Come to me. Anyone who is weary, heavy laden in heart, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. And some of us who are believers this morning and have trusted in Christ and who've walked with him for a long time, we need to be reminded of the same thing. That in Christ there is rest for our souls. We don't have to be like this Pharisee propping ourselves up before God on thin strands of our own righteousness. We need to be like this tax collector who knows our sin, and yet we understand that there is full pardon, full pardon from the Lord in Christ, and that's a great thing. Jesus saves sinners, and this story, I think, maybe more clearly than any other, presents to us exactly how we can approach God. It's not on our own merit, and if our heart is shading that way, we need to pray that God would draw us back towards a right understanding of his gospel, which is free grace in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me pray, and then I believe Pastor Craig is going to come up. Lord, thank you for this word that we've heard from your word this morning, and I, I just pray, Lord, that if there is in any of us a an unbelieving heart or a heart that is fixated on our own performance or righteousness or even a heart that distrusts your love for us, I ask that you would overwhelm us with a sense of the greatness of Christ's love. And Lord, I pray that that would be something that would carry with us uh, through today and the rest of this week and that as we walk with you, we would know that we walk as redeemed children who enjoy your love as a father. Lord, thank you for your love for us. 
pray that you would sustain us today with a greater sense of that love and, and deepen our affections for Christ as a result. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.